cliffcentral.com. Well, Dan McMillan, PhD, is uh, an appropriate guest for us to talk to. The 27th of January, just just passed, was Holocaust Remembrance Day, a day which I think everywhere all over the world should be treated with a whole lot more serious than, seriousness than it seems to be at the moment. And we know, especially in the light of what happened on October the 7th last year, that there is a renewed need to bring up the lessons of the past and hopefully for us to pay attention to those things which have happened in human history, which it seems humans are incapable of remembering for even half a generation. So I'm delighted to have Dan on. He is a historian. Dan is also the author of many books, and we will deal with one of those books today. We'll talk a little bit about the Holocaust, but we'll also talk about the way that the, uh, the way the Holocaust is being taught is so different now. And the way that these things are slipping from memory, uh, more is the pity, because if we learn nothing from such a horrible, horrible event in human history, there is only one admonition for us, and that is that we are going backwards as a civilization. Certainly, there are things about October the 7th that seem to be showing us that is precisely what is going on. We're unmoored from the, the lessons of the 20th century. So I couldn't think of a better person to bring us on to uh, onto a, a level where we can understand and discuss and engage on this topic than Dan McMillan. Dan, it's a great pleasure to see you, and thank you for making time for us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Garrett. Well, it's a pleasure. In my intro, I mentioned that uh, World Holocaust Day was on the 27th of January. Now, many of these days slip by on the calendar, and nobody gives them so much more than a cursory glance. I think, in light of what happened last year and what's continuing to uh, occupy the newsreels, on a day-to-day basis since October last year, should bring Holocaust Remembrance Day into a special kind of significance. Don't you agree? I do, although I think that people are kind of so overwhelmed by the horror of October 7th that to some degree, I can't quantify this, you know, put my finger on it, but it's almost like there is that maybe specifically with this Remembrance Day, there's kind of an element of what we call, of what's been called empathy fatigue. Uh, But nonetheless, it it certainly, in light of those events, has not lost its relevance. The Holocaust has not, and it will never lose its relevance. I, but I think there are some real problems with the way that we approach it and talk about it. I think that it's, it's interesting because it's one of the best documented historical events, and yet it is one of the most poorly understood. In my view, that's for two reasons. One is that if you want to know the whole story about, you know, why why Ger- the Germans were the perpetrators, why Jews were the victims, how someone like Hitler could come to power and so on, you get drawn into a very long and complex political narrative that stretches back a good 70 years into the 19th century. And, and you get overwhelmed, you get lost in the weeds. And I think that my fellow academic historians have found it very difficult to explain why. Um, and, and it's really only in you know, last year that I myself arrived at, you know, I think what was something of a eureka moment that, that what we have to really focus on if we have to understand why is we, we have to squarely face what it is about the Holocaust that frightens us, because it is the only historical event that truly frightens people. And in partly in consequence of that, the only historical event that millions of people around the world are ready to deny actually happened. I mean, there are no yeah. American Civil War denialists. There are no denialists that there was an apartheid regime in South Africa. There are no World War One denialists. Holocaust denial is a worldwide phenomenon. And so let me... Let me first just talk about the unique, the distinctive horror of the Holocaust, because to some degree, we've been running away from this horror from, from 1945 on. And I mean, we can talk, one direction we can go is to talk about the different ways that we have managed to run away from the horror of the Holocaust and, and the terror that it strikes in our hearts. One way that we've done so has been to see this as the result of a unique German pathology so we can say, I'm not capable of this because I'm not German. Right. And that, that search, that way of running away from the horror of the Holocaust inspired three generations of academic historians to search mm-hmm. for the German pathology. And they, and they produced a lot of great research and advanced our knowledge of German history. But at the end of the day, 
Of course, the whole idea was nonsense because there's no such thing as a German brain. There's a human brain and we all have yeah. it. Now, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent. Let me circle back now. What is uniquely frightening? I think what's frightening about the Holocaust is the challenge that it poses to the value and meaning of all of our lives. It is the only truly uncompromising assault in history upon the principle that human life has intrinsic value. In, in, every, in every war, in every mass killing, in every oppressive political or social system, one thinks, for example, of racial segregation in our southern states uh, until the civil rights laws of the 60s, uh, the killers or the oppressors dehumanize their victims and human life is cheapened. But in the Holocaust, the dehumanization of the Jewish victims was complete and human life lost all value whatsoever. And this is, this, this is terrifying and in a way it becomes only more terrifying to the extent that our societies become more secular uh, as they have become because one of the most valuable things that religious traditions do for all of us who, who, who have the blessing of faith, and I think it is a blessing and I speak as someone who was not raised with faith and doesn't really, I'm very much not an atheist, but I, um, I was never raised to have that, that strong faith in, in, in God. Um, one of the things that religious faith, faith does for human beings is provide us with a sense of meaning and purpose to our existence that extends beyond, you know, the extremely brief period of time that we are on this planet and the seemingly tiny impact that, that we have on the world. And, you know, if you're, if you're someone, you know, if you're someone without that faith, I mean, as a practical matter, people who weren't raised religious do find meaning in their lives without thinking about it too much uh, by loving other people, Ooh. by trying to be a good person, right. by treating other people right. But the I don't, I, don't think, um, I don't think it's too much to say that the scaffolding religious teachings and faith gives people is a much better scaffolding to build the idea of the, the value of human life and individual sovereignty and the ability for us to to treat other people as we would want to be treated ourselves i think without religion that is absolutely a default position for the more reptile parts of our brain and i also think it's so valid what you brought up here about the totality of the inhumanity and the evil regarding the Holocaust, because it was as a modern event. I mean, we don't know how awful Genghis Khan might have been, and we don't. We're not entirely sure whether or not, you know, the Barbary pirates in the 1700s, yeah. uh, 1800s were, were were as as vicious as the Nazis. But these people, we could see on camera. We still have the the the. We're in we're in living memory for some people that that generation is dying out but we're we're still dealing with people who actually witnessed it with their own eyes mm -hmm. and the horror the horror of this which which the world only came to terms with i mean it saw for the first time immediately after the war but only came to terms with probably a decade two decades three decades after that uh, yes. is something which I don't, I don't think Europe has entirely dealt with. There's still a huge amount of a hangover and anti-Semitism in Europe, which is, you know, to make excuses for people. You said that there's, there's no such thing as a German pathology, and I completely agree with you. The idea that any of us could be brought to be part of a system which would treat people so horrifically, not on the basis of just religion, because there were secular Jews that were treated just as badly. It was not, not on the basis at all, really. Absolutely. Not, not on the basis of ethnicity even, because we know that, you know, gypsies and, and many Soviets were killed too. But in this case, the Jews are a special category for hatred, and they have been yeah. since almost day one. If a Jew assimilates too well, they're hated. If they don't assimilate well enough, yeah. they're hated. If they're religious, they're hated. If they're secular, they're hated. If they are a practicing, uh, you know, uh, Orthodox Jew of, of, of the kind that, uh, that wears uh, identification, a, a kippah, yarmulke, or they're not. They, they're still treated, and certainly were by the Nazis, as being Jewish. And it's interesting to me that that, that is at the root. It's almost like that is the fountain for all other prejudice. Well, I think that the, 
you know, prejudice has so many different sources and anti-Semitism historically has had many different sources. And one has to say, particularly in Europe, the across the centuries, probably the dominant source of prejudice against Jews really was religious. Namely, that yeah, Judaism has been the, the parent of Christianity and in some sense, the rival of Christianity. But right. let, me, let me zero in because I've, I've talked around in general terms about the the radical denial of the value of human life by the killed perpetrators, by, by, by these Germans. And we're talking about as many as 200,000 German and Austrian men who were knowingly complicit in the killings or even directly committed murder. Um, let me just talk about some of the ways that that assault on human life was expressed. One has to acknowledge that the Jew, in the case of the Jews, it was the most extreme example because they defined the Jewish people effectively as vermin in human form. They saw them as a virus, uh, effectively, that, and if you can, you want to stamp it out everywhere so it will never grow back. And part of the specificity of the Holocaust and the horror is that the Jews were the only group in history to have been targeted for complete biological extinction, whereas that has never been true, say, of the victims of Genghis Khan, the victims of right. any other killing in history. This is a uniquely 20th century phenomenon. Uh, right. But it's also important to recognize, uh, but this does cause some confusion, that the Germans murdered an additional six to seven million Gentiles of various categories um, and without any compunction, without seeing any reason not to. Now, I don't include those, you know, the Polish victims of the occupation, Soviet POWs and so on, as part of the Holocaust. I think that term needs to be reserved for the Jews who were in a, a category unto themselves. But yes. what one has to say about, about these killers generally, and this is kind of, uh, this is kind of, if I wanted to explain to someone in one or two sentences why the Holocaust happened, it happened because the people who did this, uh, when they did this and when they murdered the six or seven million other Gentile victims, they saw no reason whatsoever to not do it because mm -hmm. a human life was of no consequence. And conse you know, the, the only thing that mattered in their eyes was the long-term flourishing and strength and survival of the so-called German race. And if, you're, if it was necessary or even just marginally convenient to that purpose, to take your life, then your life was forfeit. Um, mm -hmm. In some ways, one of the more horrifying expressions of this uh, this complete rejection to the value of human life is as many as 200,000 German mental patients and people with other disabilities whom they murdered mainly just to save money, to not have to feed them. Um, right. So, and then, and, and I tell you, this it is this recognition, this is... I think what we need to focus on, and we need to, we need to face up to how much it frightens us. We need to acknowledge the different strategies we've had for looking away from it and running away from it. Uh, and then we also need to understand the factors that came together in time to, um, to, to cause the ruling class uh, of our most advanced society to to completely devalue human life. So those are a few different directions from which we can take our conversation from here. Um, mm -hmm. I'm thinking it might be best to sort of talk to the causes, like how did these how did these German elites get to this spot? Or I, I I would like to do that, but I think as you've said, there's been so much written about this, perhaps not enough, because we 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 we're trying to, to you know in in some of these uh, works they've tried very hard to to zone in on. Germany and why it happened there and, and, and at that time. Um, but I think what, what you've made a very good case for is that this is a unique occurrence in human history. It was a, yes. it was an, an, an and when we use the word genocide, which was never really used before, uh, the, the activities of the Germans in the 1930s in, in common parlance, uh, Holocaust is, is a attributed just to that time and just to the Jewish people. And I think yeah. we, we've got to move from that definition because otherwise I do think we get caught in the reeds again. And what I want to talk about particularly and what okay. I know you have, you've spent a lot of time working on is why it is that there are so many people who are choosing either to be willfully ignorant about the Holocaust, particularly in the United States, uh, and who these people are and what their motives are for wiping out 
the Holocaust or pretending it didn't exist or mm -hmm. denying it outright, uh, who those people are internationally and, mm -hmm. and why they would have those attitudes. And especially, I think it's worth zeroing in on the media and looking at the way mm -hmm. that the media have started to treat any Israel issues, any Jewish issues, any Holocaust issues, because mm -hmm. it has changed. That has changed significantly in the last 20 years. You, you touch on so, some, some points that are so important. I think that there's, there's well, first of all, the, the people who are the protagonists of Holocaust denial, which is an international movement, I think we are talking about uh, anti-Semites of the most vicious kind. Uh, and also, uh, this also is also caught up in Mideast politics and hatred for the state of, is you know, for the state of Israel. And in some ways, the more, um, one strategy for delegitimizing the state of Israel and attacking anything about the policies of the state of Israel you don't like is to, is to claim that the Jews are uh, either exaggerating uh, the extent that the, the horrors of the Holocaust or uh, claiming something that didn't happen in order to legitimize their own behavior or to justify their own behavior. There's kind of a, you know, there's kind of a, a sort of vicious circle in that way in which conflict surrounding Israel then can uh, in some ways damage or tarnish efforts of Holocaust education. Um, I think it's interesting the insufficiency of, of Holocaust education in my country of our 50 federal states, uh, 33 do not have a legal mandate uh, a requirement that the Holocaust be taught in our public schools. That does not mean that the Holocaust is not taught in any schools in those states, but it does mean that they have not elevated it to the level that, in my opinion, they should. As far as why, although the people who are peddling the mind poison of Holocaust denial, I think you're talking about anti-Semites of the worst time, you're talking about hatred of Israel, you're talking about a, an anti-Israel political agenda, um, mm -hmm. As to why so many people who um, let themselves be duped by this, uh, some of the, some of them, then it's harder to say. You know, I, I don't know whether we have adequate well, survey data, but I would say this. Yeah, I think. Oh, go ahead. Know, I'm sorry. I, sorry. No, no. I, just, I I think that it's important that you bring that up. There are going to be a lot of stupid people in the world who are just they're just not aware of what the difference is between evidence and conspiracy theory. I think there are people, yeah. there's a large proportion, in fact, of people in the United States who still believe that the moon landings weren't real. There are people who believe in Bigfoot. There are people who believe in the Bermuda Triangle. And we're never yeah. going to convince those people otherwise. And, and I think you can write them off because no amount of evidence will convince a true nutcase uh, that something is true when it isn't or that something is not yeah. true when it is. But, but there seems to be something, and you've hinted at this, I'd like to get into that a little bit more. There seems to be something going on which is much more insidious. There's something here where in order to uh, destroy political objectives that have to do with the very existence of the state of Israel, mm -hmm. and in order to, to find the root of a kind of hatred which is very peculiar and very specific to Jews, which is why we call it anti-Semitism instead of just another form of racism. Mm -hmm. There are people who are, who are actually bad actors. They're acting in bad faith. They are, they are choosing to proffer a version of what they probably know. They're self-conscious frauds. They probably know that what they're saying is not true, but they stick to that narrative because their ultimate objective is to take out Israel and they probably, at some level, are very deep-seated anti-Semites. And I think yes. we've got to figure out what it is that makes those people not only hold on to those views, in spite of probably knowing better, but also spreading those views, propagating mm -hmm. that nonsense. Now, as far as the people who really are driving this and their political agendas, that's less my area of expertise, although there are one of the very, there's a very good scholar, Deborah Lipstadt. She was the one also, by the way, who uh, was in that, uh, was, was challenged in that libel suit by that Holocaust denier, David Irving, uh, and won that libel suit in, in Great Britain about 15 years ago. And she's written uh, a number of books actually about the Holocaust denial movement. What I wanted to sort of say about it is though that 
I think that some of the reason, and I can't, like, you can't quantify this, why Holocaust deniers get some people to believe them, um, is that it's, you know, is again, this, this fear, this, this challenge that this poses to the worth and meaning of all our lives, uh, and, and that it was just so ghastly and so extreme, I think a lot of people, if you can give them some encouragement to believe, to believe that, that we human beings, that they themselves personally are not capable of such, such cruelty, people would like to believe that. And I, I also like to, th I also think, and maybe I, I focus on this because this is where I think we can make progress, is that I, I also think that some denial gets traction because it's, it's been, we've done such a lousy job of explaining why. And, and for that matter, I mean, among academic historians, well past the year 2000, you had distinguished people saying, this event is so extreme, we can't explain it in the same way we can explain the American Revolution or uh, the French Revolution or so on, uh, which is completed another nonsense. Uh, and that in turn is another way that people have had of running away from the full horror that is to throw up our hands and say, this is beyond our comprehension. Um, so I'm sort of talking elliptically a little bit here. Um, no, no, no. I, I'd, like to, I'd like to add to that. I think that's very valuable. Um, but I'd like to add to that, that, that underlying a lot of this academic opposition to um, the Holocaust story and Israel, underlying that is a kind of open and obvious siding and sympathy with Marxist postmodernist thinking, which is all about narratives around oppressed and oppressor, and that the Jews have moved from a category in the minds of simpletons at many of our academic institutions. Yeah. Jews as a group have moved from the position of being oppressed, which clearly in history they were, to a position of oppressor because it serves a narrative in the modern age. And we see also that this is borne out, I can give you evidence for this, in the position of people like Jeremy Corbyn on the left in the UK. I can see it in the position of Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib in America. These people are clearly on the left. It used to be that anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial resided exclusively on the right. That is no longer the case. With, with regard specifically to how anti-Semitism has gotten caught up recently in American politics, I'm actually going to avoid that for the simple reason that my current occupation I lead a strictly nonpartisan campaign to overcome the the destructive impact of big money in American politics, because the unique feature of our political system is that our election campaigns cannot be limited in cost. They're fabulously expensive. They're paid for by private donors, and this has disenfranchised most Americans, including myself. Because of that, because I need to build support among Americans of all political stripes, I avoid making any comment on contemporary U.S. politics. Uh, I just need to mention that just so you understand, um, then my silence on that topic does not reflect a stance one way or another. Well, I, I understand that, and I think it's unfortunate that people in your position who are, who are so articulate on this subject are forced, because of the politics of the day, to have to withhold opinions on important matters like this when it is evident to all and sundry that there are a great number of this uh, caucus on the left who seem to be, their, their primary motive is an anti-Semitic, anti-Israel one, almost above and beyond any domestic concerns. And I, I'll say it if you can't, because I think it's worthy of, of taking a, a, a much more prominent position in, in the the discussion around anti-Semitism, around uh, whether or not October the 7th has been taken seriously enough. And I do think it should be a bipartisan issue. But unfortunately, on this matter, there are a great many people and a growing caucus on the left who are doing their damnedest to come up in opposition to Israel and open hostilities being shown to Jews at every occasion they, ha they have to make public comments. I've mentioned their names. You don't have to. Well, there just has, there's, you know, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I mean, there's no doubt, there's no getting on the fact 
I remember talking, I heard someone very interesting speaking a couple of days ago, Rabbi Abraham Cooper of the Wiesenthal Institute in Los Angeles. And he said about, about you know, outbursts or expressions of racism or bigotry, he said, it always starts with the Jews, but it never ends with the Jews. And that is, yeah. that is so very true. Um, Agreed. When I tried to understand the pervasiveness of, gen, of, of anti-Semitism, um, I mean, it, 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 you know, the, the instrument, instruments, the, the way that it gets instrumentalized varies a lot in different contexts. I mean, one of the things that has been so striking when I look at the politics of the Middle East across the decades is the degree to which governments, um, in, you know, to their own people sort of blame their own failures, blame the shortcomings of their societies, blame the uh, the failure of their governments to deliver, you know, clean, corruption-free government and economic growth, that they blame all these problems on Jews, even though all these countries persecuted and drove out their own Jewish populations in the decades after the, after the, uh, the, the founding of the state of Israel, because all these countries, Egypt and Iran and so on, had hundreds of thousands of Jews, many of them, uh, who were driven into exile. Um, I think one thing that's been a red thread that runs through, uh, the, that runs through, runs, it's, you see it in Germany in the lead up to the Holocaust, you see it throughout the history of my country in the 20th century, and I think even today, uh, is, is simply that in, in pretty much every society in which Jews have lived, unless they are held down by truly crushing discrimination, uh, they succeed and they contribute to these societies to an extraordinarily impressive degree. Um, and you look in my country, I mean, at the, at the top, at the faculties of our top universities, you, you see, I mean, this, it's been a while since I looked at these statistics. I might be off by a little percentage or two, but something like you're talking 20 to 30% of the faculty in many fields are Jewish when mm -hmm. Jews are no more than 2% of my country's population. Uh, and that was true. That was so true during the first half of the 20th century in Germany. You know, yeah. The, the 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 Jewish contribution to humankind and particularly to Western civilization cannot be underestimated. They they've no. punched so far their weight, and and whether secular or other kinds of Jewry, they have contributed in so many ways to the ideas around human rights, around philosophy, let alone technology, science. Uh, mathematics, uh, the development of medicine, and so many other things in which they have absolutely played the most pivotal role, despite their tiny, tiny proportion of the, of the mm -hmm. population. I'm curious, you mentioned academics and academia. And in America, one of the most startling things for me is that at the tertiary education institutions, the very places where you would have people study the Holocaust, where you'd have you would expect to find an understanding of history where you would see, hopefully find serious minded people who could take uh, matters like the Holocaust and really pour over them to the degree that people like you have. And what worries me is that we see at these universities such blatant anti-Semitism. We see a complete about turn with regard to studying history. Everything's being revisionist now and critical thinking and critical uh, studies have become the mainstay. And instead of paying attention to actual history and talking about the Holocaust, we see people being openly hostile to Jews, uh, to American history, uh, to the involvement of Jews throughout history. And, and even the existence of the state of Israel becomes an, a hot potato issue on campus. Why do you think students in particular have been so disappointing on the issues that you talk about so much? Well, you know, I, I think that there is, a, there is a general problem at our universities, and it's one that I, I've been out of the, you know, I taught at the, at the university level for five years. I left 20 years ago uh, for, for other pursuits. There has been a degradation of academic standards generally at the universities. There has also been an increasingly aggressive um, well, in some departments, the problem is it just varies a lot from department to department. Um, you know, politicization sometimes of instruction. Um, you do also see, um, 
really a kind of left-wing political conformity on our college campuses that I find uh, terribly distressing. On the other hand, you know, in the field of, of history, uh, I don't, I'm not aware of a whole lot of anti-Semitism among historians, academic historians in my country. Holo the Holocaust is, I mean, Holocaust studies is a very, and genocide studies is a very robust field. In my country, some of the finest Holocaust historians in the world are at American universities. Uh, you know, again, I'm trying to sort of stay away from getting but drawn then, into the No, no. I think we must we must uh, be very open and honest about this. The the immediate reaction to October the seventh on university campuses as diverse as Columbia, um, uh, University of Pennsylvania, um, even MIT, the, the humanities students at those universities have been firmly on the side of Palestine, even Hamas. You could argue in some of these situations since October mm -hmm. the seventh. In fact. Even the the lecturers and academics on social media have been posting stuff which is openly hostile to to Israel and to Jews in general. You know where Jewish students have had to be, had to be protected personally protected by security from other students. It's it, it seems to me that we can't deny that the American student population. Forget about historians. I don't think historians are particularly the problem, but I think students seem to be. Uh, very much on one side of this, and that they are—they are the kind of people who would deny the Holocaust, or at very least, have no interest in hearing about the truth of that ugly chapter in human history. They like to brandish everyone else as being, or rather, brandish the name Nazi and to use it to apply that label to people who they disagree with. But they don't really know anything about Nazis or the Holocaust. You could ask them three questions and discover very quickly that they have an absolutely cursory idea of what history is. Well, I would agree that most of our university students are not well informed about history, whether our own or that of other countries. Uh, I, I understand what you're saying about these expressions of anti-Semitism on our campuses. There's no doubt that there have been plenty. They're shocking. They're profoundly deplorable. Whether they represent the majority of students or even humanities students, that has not been my impression. But it's probably better if we kind of sort of pivot more to the Holocaust itself, because that's really where my expertise lies. I'm an expert really, I'd say on three things. I'm an expert on American politics, specifically on money and politics, which is what I work on, and an expert on German history and the Holocaust. And so um, I'm not denying that you're just discussing a vitally important issue. Uh, sure. I, I feel like I'm not the best qualified. I feel like on this particular- okay. Sure, well, yeah, no, we'll leave Your it. audience should hear from someone who's better informed than I am is what I'm saying. I, I then, in that case, want to pivot immediately to Germany in the 1930s. And yeah. I want to look at, and even before that, to the Weimar Republic and to the First World War, the pogroms, you could even say, that, that preceded all of that. And let's look at what the conditions were in Germany that, that hastened, let's not say that created the conditions for the Holocaust, but that hastened them in that particular place with that particular population at that particular time. What do you think the combination of factors were that drove otherwise smart people? I mean, the intellectuals in Germany in the 1920s were the most hostile to Jews. The That's academics exactly were the, right. the the academics and the and the and, and the aristocracy, in fact, were the ones who were most virulently anti-Semitic. Am I right? Well, I, I would say academics were the very worst learned, you know, academics and the learned professions, law and medicine, uh, you know, during the 1920s and leading up to Hitler's seizure of power, the only professional group or body of Germans that whose organizations became majority Nazi were university students. What's the background to that? I think the most important, the background to that is effectively that during the last sort of three decades of the German Empire, which ended in the revolution of 1918, the one of the primary strategies for the defenders of the empire, which also included all of the elites that we're talking about, including intellectual elites, because, you know, it, like at American universities today, generally we think of professors as being politically on the left. In Germany, they were overwhelmingly on the right. They were all people fighting a a determined rearguard action against democratization. And one of the unfortunate developments in Germany in the late empire was that the, the political party that was most strongly advocating 
for the breakthrough to a, to a democratic form of government as opposed to this um, cons, you know, semi-authoritarian constitutional monarchy that you had under the Kaiser was the Socialist mm -hmm. Party. And because um, there was already in the minds of people across Europe and our country an identification of Marxism with Jews uh, for a number of reasons, not least of which being Karl Marx's Jewish parentage, one of the primary strategies for, on the part of the German right and for the imperial government itself for beating off the challenge of the socialists was to try to overcome class conflict and the, the, the Marxist message of, of class struggle um, by trying to unite Germans against common enemies, against foreign countries, supposedly a threat to Germany, and against the Jews at home who supposedly were fostering division among Germans uh, through a policy of divide and conquer in which the Marxist theory of class struggle was their principal tool. And they were succeeded in doing this and succeeded in persuading pretty much the entire elite of Germany or almost the entire elite of embracing this nonsense uh, because uh, in part because the Jews were so successful in the media dominant in newspapers and in high culture and book publishing. And so the argument was also they use their control of the intellectual high ground to manipulate the masses to make them vote socialist. And that's, that, that is also the domestic political agenda that inspired a bullying German foreign policy that was probably the single biggest cause of the First World War, that the government kept looking for prestige successes in foreign policy uh, to mm -hmm. strengthen itself politically at home. So that's a very sort of breathless summary. But that said, although these people on the German right and especially sort of extreme right-wing nationalists were talking already before World War I about uh, you know, discriminatory laws against Jews, you know, not letting them teach school, uh, any newspaper that had Jewish staff had to be branded as a Jewish paper, um, right. maybe even revoking their citizenship, no one was talking about murder, and the really the watershed is World War One, because you know two million Germans die on the field of battle, and if you you know there would be in my country as a fraction of population as if we fought a war and lost ten million today, and what that did is it drastically cheapened human life, it drastically lowered the threshold for violence, it made killing. Um, millions of people for political ends seem like a simple, normal fact of political life. And that's one of the factors that helps make pave the way for this radical rejection of the value of human life. But the question you posed to me, I would see the background, it's essentially the right-wing political strategy of unifying Germans against the allegedly divisive Jews and against foreign countries that leads to this toxic mix of militant nationalism and anti-Semitism that is just the precursor of the ideology of Nazism. That's sort of the breeding ground from it. That's what sets it up. That's where Hitler gets his ideas effectively. And I mean, there's a large part of this that is just classic old school scapegoating, right? And, and if you don't have an enemy to rally the people around, then they'll, they'll find one. And the Jews are always a convenient, um, victim not only because you could easily identify them or at least they thought in the beginning you know you mentioned world war one there are many jews who fought for germany in world war one yes uh, there there are many jews who were who were engaged in all kinds of ways and in all levels of society in german uh, culture and in, in the empire as it was under the the kaisers mm -hmm. but, but but jews had certain practices and certain things that identified them first of all if if they choose if they chose to use those those identifiers but also they they had done as you indicated in a in a previous discussion that we we've had this evening around uh the fact that jews tend to do quite well they support their own communities they stood out and therefore they were also a good target because they as as the nazis started to you know come out of the the throes of Weimar depression, they needed money and they needed wealth, which they could just take from people who were easily scapegoated. I mean, we all know what happened with Kristallnacht and the number of, uh -huh. of Jewish uh -huh. businesses that were destroyed at that time. The amount of, 
of actual hard assets that were taken from Jewish people and Jewish businesses. And that obviously swelled the coffers of the Nazis at the same time. And then, and this is where I'd really like to have your comments too, okay. is this, okay. this bizarre pagan stuff that Heinrich Himmler and others mm. like him brought in this idea of Valhalla and the Germans, the an antiquated Germans as, you know, being these forest dwelling, uh, warlike, yeah. uh, you know, uh, tribesmen of great virtue and that Germany was polluted at some blood and DNA level by admixture with other races and that this this mm -hmm. idea put the Jews at the very bottom of the hierarchy of, of human uh, purity and put the Germans at the very top. It was, of course, yeah. completely made up. There was no basis for this at all, but it was foundational to Nazi philosophy. Well, let me, let me talk about these notions of different alleged races being superior to each other, because here we're talking about something that unfortunately had tremendous intellectual credibility, not right. only in Germany, but throughout the Western world. And I'm referring to social Darwinist racism, which was mm -hmm. a simplified misapplication of Darwin's theory of evolution through natural selection to human society that became, that gained strength and eventually hit you know, intellectual hegemony uh, toward the end of the 19th century and well through the first half of the 20th. And again, throughout the Western world, including in my country. And there are two aspects of that that I want to highlight. One is the belief, and this was taught in universities by psychology professors um, and anthropologists and so on. This was uh, considered the gold standard intellectually that that each nationality or ethnic group, whether it's Jews, Germans, Poles, Greeks, Scotsmen, and so on, is a, is a race unto its own that it has distinctive genetically determined characteristics that each so-called race evolved more further or lesser from the apes than others and it evolved in distinctive ways that all of these nationalities are genetically hardwired for their moral qualities and their intellectual qualities, that there's an elaborate rank, uh, ranking of quality uh, between the races of the world, all, all variations of white people being at the top of these rankings and black people at the bottom. But even among white people, in my country, we introduced a very strict immigration law in 1924 to cut off further immigration from the so-called wrong parts of Europe, from Southern and Eastern Europe, like Italians or Russian Jews or Poles, who we thought right. were endangering our nation's racial health. Anyway, this then opens the door to the, the anti-Slav racism that makes mm -hmm. the German government comfortable with murdering Soviet POWs and starving the population of Poland under occupation and to the fantasy that the Jewish people are hardwired to behave parasitically and destructively, that they, that they feed parasitically on every society in, in which they live, they, they, and through a policy of divide and conquer in which Marxism is their weapon to divide. The other offshoot or consequence of this social Darwinist racism is that world history is the story <clears throat> of the Darwinian fight for survival between the world's races, that war is to be welcomed rather than, than deplored because it's an opportunity for the fit races to exterminate the unfit races. And this will ennoble uh, and improve the human species just as the, the competition for survival in the wild drove the evolution from apes into human beings. And so that this led to a, a completely amoral attitude toward warfare that was by no means unique to Germany, but rather justified the colonial empires of all the European powers and also of my, of my country in the Caribbean and in the Western Pacific. Um, and Hitler was just the, the, the leader who took this racial Darwinist view of world politics to its most extreme conclusion. Um, and in particular, you see this in his invasion of the Soviet Union, which is gonna, is gonna kill two birds with one stone in his mind. One is because the Soviet Union is a communist, a Marxist state, therefore automatically it must be a Jewish controlled state, which it most certainly was not. But Hitler said and justified to his followers and 
endless people in the German army and in, in German elites accepted this, this story that they were cutting off the head of the worldwide Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy. Um, right. And at the same time, uh, annexing all of European Russia with all its resources and farmland so that Germany would become so large and populous that Germany would be, would be invulnerable to attack in future wars uh, and its long-term survival would be uh, assured. And the invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 2020, uh, June of uh, 1941, excuse me, um, became then the trigger, the catalyst for the Holocaust because the, the Germans said to themselves, and the army was completely on board with this, uh, aristocratic officers, all these Jews living in the Soviet Union behind the lines of our advancing troops are natural saboteurs because being Jews, they must be communists. So we need to start mm -hmm. shooting them. And this eventually led in the fall of that year, um, sort of exhilarated by his successes on the Eastern Front, thinking that victory over Moscow was imminent, Hitler said, I have now the opportunity to completely exterminate the Jewish people, at least in Europe, which means that we then permanently ban the threat of communist revolution. And that's the train of thinking that led to the Holocaust and to this historically unique ambition of the biological extinction of the group, of the target group. Um, can, can you comment on, on the, the Nazi philosophy of, of, in particular, this idea that uh, Germans were specifically chosen? I mean, I think this was what convinced otherwise sensible people, you know, in, mm -hmm. the, in the, throes of, the throes of nationalism and many of the other things that we've, we've come to understand uh, because mm -hmm. we've seen it in, in recent and living memory that nationalism can be dangerous, that that uh, that, that ethno-nationalism is probably the most dangerous kind of nationalism. Yeah. But we've also seen that people all need a guiding philosophy, and that the the Germans were, for you know, better or worse, either Protestant or Catholic, largely. But that yes. didn't seem to stop them. That didn't seem to provide any moral hindrance to the very destructive and terrible and evil things that people perpetrated because the government told them to. Otherwise, perfectly good people were completely convinced they were doing good things. Well, that's, you know, I think that you, you got to, again, of course, distinguish between the people in government who are doing this and the great mass of the German people who certainly had a lot of information, knew that their government was murdering Jews, I think, but at least by the hundreds of thousands, but certainly could not perceive the Europe-wide scope of the enterprise and uh, the death camps, you know, the, the true extermination camps like Auschwitz and Treblinka were a very well-kept secret. I mean, one would not want to say that your average German was in favor of genocide. That is, I think there's, that would be a very misleading statement. I think the things that led the the killers, the you know the the people in the German government who who carried out the, you know these plans, um, what made it possible for them to do this again, I think, was the combination of the cheapening of life in World War One and of social Darwinist racism that led them to feel that there is no moral consequence. It, it doesn't matter. The individual doesn't matter. All that matters is the survival of our race, and after all, all the other races, the French, the English, uh, the Russian, they are taking the same approach. They, they would be equally, equally ruthless in advancing and uh, preserving the security of their races. Uh, that led people to, to, to feel no moral compunction. There's a final point in all of this that is very difficult for people to get our minds around, and that is the deification of Adolf Hitler in the minds of his people um, that, that, that is possible because uh, the Germans were uniquely desperate at the time that he came to power because not only was unemployment 30%, which was the worst of any major economy, but they had had a, a string of failed political systems, first the empire, then the republic. They didn't even know if there was a political system that would allow them to govern themselves given their many the many class and religious disagreements that tended to tear the country apart. And in such moments of desperation, a people 
an electorate will, the last place they look for hope is the idea that some figure of superhuman capabilities can cut through the Gordian knot of problems. And what happened, unfortunately, is that Hitler was able to present himself as this figure because he had this brilliant propagandist, Joseph Goebbels, uh, immediate, very soon after taking power, state control of the media, Hitler's mesmerizing uh, powers as a public speaker that carried people away. And then an eight-year string of stunning successes, of which perhaps the the defeat of France and Britain in only six weeks in the spring of 1940 was the most spectacular, but an eight-year string of successes due not to his talent, but rather mostly to dumb luck. But the public, the German people had no way of knowing that it was um, dumb luck. All they knew was we have our jobs back and this war we thought was going to be another World War I is over in six weeks. And now we're racing toward Moscow and almost unopposed and so on. Uh, all that also, the, this belief that Hitler effectively was a figure shaping history and thus really uh, above and outside all morality, all law, all ethics, uh, and nothing that he did could be morally uh, morally objectionable. Nothing that he did by definition could be illegal. And that was the third ingredient in this perfect storm that made possible this total moral nihilism that characterizes the killers. Now, I want to pick up on something that you have said at a couple of points. You've talked about, like very early in our conversation, about how religious faith may be sort of the best sort of moral scaffolding that gives people meaning for their lives and a source of moral orientation. I just want to qualify that by, by virtue of the fact that I must define my own position here. I am not a believer in any particular faith. Okay. Uh, I, I'm not, not some kind of militant atheist, and I'm fully aware and appraised, as I'm sure you and many of our more educated listeners will be, of the cozy relationship that Hitler had with the Catholic Church and the fact that they made his birthday a, a public holiday and that Catholic schools were given unbelievable freedoms under the Nazis as long as they preached a little bit of Nazi doctrine with the very worst of Catholic impulses. So I'm, I'm not going to give them a free pass on this if that's where we're going. But, but it's interesting too, because I, I myself am I'm pretty much an agnostic. I tend to believe there's a God, but faith plays no role in my life. Um, sure. And I think, but it's interesting, the accommodations they gave to the Catholic church came about because when they tried to, for example, intervened too much in the Catholic schools or in Catholic families, they faced open rebellion. Um, the, Catholic, the Catholic population was the least Nazified in Germany. Now, the, the clergy of both of all, you know, both major denominations, the, the main Protestant denomination, the Catholic Catholicism, were utterly craven, submissive to the regime when the regime told them to effectively excommunicate their congregants, you know, converts to Christianity of Jewish blood, uh, those churches immediately shunned them at the regime's request. But on the other hand, it, when you get to the core of the regime and the ideologically most committed, that is the men of the SS, that prided itself um, as the most devoted followers to Hitler, and this is the paramilitary organization that planned, organized, and, you know, the Holocaust and carried out most of the murders, um, those people were ferociously anti-Christian. They did their best to conceal their hostility to Christianity to the general public. The, the game plan was, look, we're not going to take on the churches during the war. We need to have the country united against our enemies. But once we've won, the long-term plan was to stamp out Christianity and make Nazism the religion of the German people, even though it really wasn't in any sense a religion. But uh, and one of the probably one of the most important reasons for their hostility to Christianity is they felt that uh, the notion, the Christian notion, that you know all human beings are descended from one biological pair, that all yeah. human beings are equally valued, yeah. that Christian brotherly love would be would be would weaken the Germans and prevent them from being as ruthless as they needed to be yeah. to preserve their survival. And they talk this way about it at all, and that. You look at Ger the diary of Goebbels, you look at things that Himmler says, 
the hostility to Christianity for retirement, mm -hmm. that Christianity will keep us from it, that Christianity I'll provides a kind of floor under the value of human life, and we must reject the value of human life, and Christianity stands in the way of that. In 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 the limited time we've got left, I think it's okay. worth reflecting. I, I think it's worth reflecting on something which is also a fairly modern phenomenon. There seems to yeah. have been, at very least, a feeling of overall humanitarian guilt over what happened. At least in most parts of the civilized world, in the nineteen forties and fifties, and for for a, a long time after that, it was regarded that humanity had made a terrible and colossal mess of. Yeah. that part of our history and that that we were in some way expected to be better as a result of the lessons learned there seems though today to be this idea especially among uneducated young people that if they were in germany in the 1930s they would have somehow stood for good and they would have been brave enough yeah. to have to have spoken out and and this irritates me because first of all they're not judging it with any knowledge of the times or of the history which you can give yeah. us a clear picture but also they assume that somehow they're morally superior to their antecedents. Um, and, and that's not true either. There are probably many people who, if you sat them down, and there are interviews, you can find these online now, thanks to the wonders of the internet, with people who had been Nazis during uh, the, 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 the Second World War, who'd been either in the army or in civil society, who had in some way, shape or form, even if it was indirectly, contributed to the evil of that regime. but who were filled with regret because they weren't even sure of how it happened that they were pulled into this yeah. machine. And I think it's really wrong of people today to look back and say, well, we're better than that. You know, I, as a 23-year-old um, yeah. student at university, I would have stood up to the Nazis. I wouldn't have let Hitler roll over the Jewish people or the French or anyone else the way that he did. It is indeed pathetic, and it's, it's, it's such an interesting conundrum because we are all product of our circumstances, and we all have free will. Uh, I think we have to recognize from the, you know, what the Holocaust, I think, teaches us is that if you, if you teach us the wrong ideas, you put us under the wrong kind of government, namely a dictatorship, and you put us in the wrong circumstances, namely a general war in which all life is necessarily cheapened and devalued, there's no limit to how low we can sink. On the other hand, I guess in the last minutes, I want to push back against any kind of pessimism here, Gareth, because you know, yes, we have learned, I mean, since World War II, we have been teaching each other and ourselves that racism and discrimination are wrong. We have strengthened the right kind of government, namely the democratic form of government. And although Putin is doing this terrible thing he's doing in Ukraine, the powers of Europe you know, are not going to fight another World War II. And we really have, we have built societies that today, for all their flaws, are morally superior to every human society that came before. And we did that partly because we were horrified by the Holocaust and the Nazi regime, and we learned from it. And I, yes. I guess one of the things that I've learned as an historian, I think it is an inextinguishable part of human nature to strive for moral progress. It's at the center of all the world's religious traditions, we want to become better. And over time, we have become better and we will become better in future, even though there will be many setbacks and many failures along the way. And I guess I need to emphasize that because when people remember the Holocaust, it can lead to pessimism and despair. But if we are gonna become yeah. better and make progress, we have to have faith in our own ability to improve. And I think if you look at, at human history at the grand sweep, not just the Holocaust, you see the determination of human beings to improve morally, and you see the progress we've made, and we have to acknowledge that even as we also do honor to the, the victims of this horror. I'm, I'm so pleased you, you ended on that note, because this can be a very dark and disturbing thing, especially for someone who is not au fait with the facts here, to start reading about yeah. and, and I encourage them to take a look at your book. The book is called, How Could This Happen? Such a powerful question. Dan McMillan's book, it's available online. You can get it at uh, good bookstores too. But go and look it up. How could this happen? Such a fundamental question when it comes to looking at this. You've spent four decades studying this aspect of our history, this part of our collective, because we can't, uh, as you said so eloquently at the beginning of this, we can't just dump this on the Germans and think that we don't all have a lesson to learn. 
from the ugliness of the 1930s and 40s in Germany. And I cannot recommend it enough. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Dan, and I, I wish Good we had more time. It's all mine, Gareth. It's, it's so wonderful <laughs> to be able to, to dig so deep and, and, you know, with a conversation partner who just thinks so thoughtfully about so many ideas. So, you know, I tell you, if you ever want me to come back and help your countrymen understand why American politics has gotten so crazy. I've got plenty of ideas on that too. <laughs> oh. oh, listen, that's, that's another, how could this happen? It's not as dark and as, as evil, but it's certainly as perplexing. Uh, we look at, at what you've got coming up in this election with uh, these two old men. Uh, yeah. Is this the best, is this the best that the world's greatest nation can give us? I don't know. I don't think so. We will turn it around of that. I have no <laughs> doubt. I would just say it's my last positive thought is thought that's important. You got to remember about America, the democratic form of government is not an option for us. It's, it defines us. It's the essence of who we are. And once the American people understand how this was done to them, how they were disenfranchised and can see a path toward fixing it, my countrymen are not going to take this line down indefinitely. Sooner or later, we are going to turn this around. But I must admit, when I look, exactly as you say, we can't do better than two men this old who've got substantial baggage. The system is in trouble. But yeah. I tell you, betting on betting against America has never been a smart move, and it's not a smart move today. Let us hope that your words redound as eternal wisdom, that we are bending that arc ever towards morality and moral progress. I can't uh, imagine a better way to end the conversation, but thank you so much, Dan. It's been a great pleasure to have you on. Dan, Macmillan is the man who wrote How Could This Happen? Read the book and uh, check out some of his other work. We uh, look forward to hearing more from you in the future. We'll definitely get you back. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much, Gareth.